We need more women. We need more people of color. We need more folks from all financial walks of life. And we need those diverse individuals participating in the conversation to help build our city, our province, and our country in a way that works for everyone. Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. Hi, Janine. Hey, Tara. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm pretty good. We're here with Ms. Anna Murphy. Um, thank you for joining us, Anna. It's really good to, to have you on. Well, thank you so much, Tara and Janine, for the invitation to join you for a conversation on the Pink Tax podcast. It is an absolute pleasure, and I have been so looking forward to it. Awesome. So tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourself. You're um, thinking about running for politics within the Calgary area. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, Yes. I mean, my journey began, which actually that kind of sounds like we're about to embark upon the reading of a fairy tale to which (laughs) my life most certainly is not. And if it is, I'm still, you know, waiting for the pants and Prince Charming to show up. Clearly he missed his entrance cue. Um, but I digress. Uh, you know, really my story kind of begins with growing up in rural Alberta. And I say with great pride that I am Albertan. You know, my roots are planted in values, which living on a ranch and having a cowboy as a dad provided me with. So things such as hard work, determination, grabbing life by the horns, which when you grow up on a ranch, sometimes that actually is literal. Um, You know, I'm proud of my roots. It most certainly was not always the case, you know, being labeled as a quote unquote other uh, or or being perceived as as different or or not fitting into the norm. So it it most certainly was not always something which I found pride in, Um, especially again, when when you're growing up and, and all you wanted was to be somewhere where you felt like you belonged. Um, however, as the years have kind of sort of passed and, and I've grown into myself, have very much realized, you know, who I am is, is due to, to being that country girl at heart. And if you fast forward to kind of a present day life, which is quite contrast, uh, which is, you know, involves living in the heart of downtown Calgary, um, getting to experience and engage uh, with, you know, the vibrant cultural diversity, which makes not only our community within Calgary, but in fact, uh, all communities across Alberta livable and sustainable. Um, so then if you kind of, you know, do a really quick dive into my professional background, you know, I've, it's also not typical. I've spent more than nine years in the retail industry, building a professional background that's involved things like sales, marketing, management, strategic planning to then my immensely rewarding and unforgettable experiences, having formerly served as a director of fund development, director of business development, community member, or sorry, committee member and volunteer coordinator for nonprofit organizations within the city of Calgary, which through all of my volunteer roles has allowed me to advocate for strong positive change within Calgary and throughout the province for LGBTQ2S plus individuals um, with a focus on breaking down barriers for transgender and gender diverse Albertans. Um, And then through my volunteer work even further, it has also uh, allowed me and I've been so fortunate to have connected with some of 
the most absolutely remarkable and inspiring individuals within our community. So ultimately, a, a wide range of professional lived experience, which provides me with a pretty diverse and unique outlook on both the cultural and economic dynamics, which are not only just here within Calgary, but throughout Alberta. And that kind of really rolls up into what, what, what you first put forward, which is now we find me in the presence of navigating my intention towards putting my name on the ballot in 2021 for a seat on Calgary Council. That's so cool. Um, and I really like what you said about, you know, bringing the community get together. And I think having been born in Alberta and growing up here and stuff like that, I think for a while there's been like a division between rural and like city folk, but I don't think there has to be. Like, I think at the base of it, you know, we're all community minded and yeah. Can you share with us what ward you're thinking about running for so we can kind of get out the vote when the time comes or is that not something you can do? No, that is totally something you can do. Um, or I guess I can do. Um, so currently right now, uh, the wards in which I am intent on running in is ward eight. So Ward 8 is probably one of our most diverse wards within the city of Calgary. You have everything from the, the most wealthiest of, of the community of Calgary. If you're looking up in, say, a community like Mount Royal, you also have uh, new Canadians and some of our you know, most lowest earners uh, in, in the city also um, within, within the community. So you get this really big mix and you get everything in between. You also get young families. You also get students. You get, you know, single individuals who are maybe just starting out, young professionals. Um, so you really get everything within Ward 8, which honestly, I absolutely love um, because everything is, it, it, no day is, is ever going to be the same. Uh, no issue is, is ever going to be the same. Um, and yeah, you just, you get to, you get to touch with everything that makes, makes our city great and deal with all of the great diversity that makes Calgary, uh, what Calgary is quite frankly. So Ward 8, Ward 8 is, is where I'm running and I could not be more, more proud and more honored to be considering to run, to serve and represent the constituents within that ward. That's so cool. That's awesome. And yeah, you mentioned, you know, there's like um, diverse incomes, diverse backgrounds. And so money is something that we talk about here on the podcast, obviously. Um, Janine and I have, you know, a pretty good, big passion for personal finance, but we also think, you know, it's, it's personal finance first. And, you know, it can get pretty political based on what your background in it is in the community you come from. Um, so you mentioned you're an LGBTQ2S plus uh, advocate. Is that correct to say it's like that? That is 110% correct. And, you know, we can even expand on that and say that, yes, I'm an advocate, but I'm also a transgender woman. Cool. Yeah. And so as a transgender woman and as an advocate, if things were different when you were growing up, what do you think would have helped you to remove either personal financial barriers or uh, barriers within like 
the political framework, within the framework of society as it is today, maybe as it was 10 years ago, you know, everything that's kind of imposed on us, um, be it sort of like the cultural norms of like being misogynist and transphobic. And I don't even like transphobic. I'm starting to say like anti-LGBTQ2S plus because it's just, it's not a phobia. (laughs) It's just being like horrible. But anyway, (laughs) um, my main question is, what would have helped you? What are the biggest barriers that would have helped you in life? And um, how are you trying to make that easier for like the next generation, those who come after you? You know, if I start with answering that question on, on a personal note, you know, I, 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 I've, I've been fortunate to be able to experience some success in my life, but the, the reality is, is that I also know what it's like to worry, of, worry about keeping a roof over my head or putting food on the table. Um, and a lot of that comes from, you know, especially early on in my transition where maybe you're not to use a very outdated and gross term, quote unquote, passable. Um, it, it, it does create this barrier to gaining uh, employment and making beyond, you know, minimum wage or actually be able, being able to make a, a income that's going to, you know, pay your rent, pay your, pay your food bill, uh, heck even pay for paying for things like, like a transit pass. So from a personal side, you know, I, I, I definitely am not, you know, one of these one of these individuals that you know comes from comes from from a family of privilege or comes from money um, or or anything like that. So I've 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 in my later you know in in the last few years, yes, I, I have experienced um, some success, um, but have have worked really hard to get there. Um, but now, I mean, the, the reality is, I am in that same boat with I think the last number that was out, I think there's 8 million Canadians who are currently on the CERB who have either been laid off or, or, or their job is, is no longer existent because of the, the pandemic. I am in that boat. Um, so I, I, I to, to start with answering it on a bit more of a, a personal, um, you know, side of, of finance. Um, and, you know, when we also think about personal finance, so many people talk about, you know, well, having, you know, things like savings and, you know, uh, retirement plans and all of these things, which, yeah, that definitely is, is, is maybe on folks' mind. But again, when you are just maybe barely, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, the last thing you're going to be doing is, you know, tucking away money for, you know, a, a rainy day, because quite literally, that 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 ten dollars or twenty dollars or even a hundred dollars, whatever the case may be, that that needs to go towards paying for for groceries for for the next two weeks or paying for your transit pass so that you can get around the city for for the month. Um, so yeah, so for 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 marginalized individuals, because this is also not just a unique um, uh, this is not just a unique problem for for the gender and sexually diverse community. This is a a, a issue which plagues and and impacts you know single mothers or new Canadians or you know BIPOC individuals within our community. This is this is not just a, a a woman's issue. This you know almost could be you know argumentatively if we're going to talk about things like a, a universal basic income, 
potentially we could start, you know, making an argument that it might actually be a human rights issue so that people can actually be able to put food on their table and a roof over their heads. I think that's, I think that's defined by the United Nations as, you know, being basic human rights that we need to ensure that we're doing. Um, so if I, di if I digress a little bit, um, if we want to look at it a bit more through the political um, sense um, for say the next generation who are coming up following me or following any any diverse candidate uh, really you you know financial barriers are a hurdle that many candidates who maybe don't necessarily fit that typical mold face and again not just for gender and sexually diverse candidates but also for candidates of color and candidates that are not financially well off or have access to donors with deep pockets the you know the, the the unfortunate thing is yes it does take money to run a campaign it does take money to get elected as much as we would love that for that not to be the case that's just the reality of the system that we kind of have to work within in order to get in to kind of change the system if if that makes sense um you know there there are also a broad range of social and economic factors that make it substantially harder for non-privileged candidates in all elections whether that's local provincial um or federal um, every woman or diverse individual who has ran for councillor, uh, member of the Legislative Assembly, member of Parliament, or really anyone who's come forward as a candidate for a public servant position has had to deal with overcoming unique barriers and challenges in some way, shape, or form. And even those not in politics, we have had at some point to deal with barriers within our lives that may not be a reality for, for, for someone else. Um, so it, it really is a cultural issue um, in addition to being a financial issue, but it really is a cultural issue. Um, and you know, it's looking at things like continued inequality of women in the workplace or the allowance of disgusting vitriol or threats of violence or assault against women, especially those who are in politics or public life. All you have to do is open your Twitter feed and go to pretty much any female uh, politician or someone who is serving in the public life and it won't take you long to see some of the the vile that, that is being uh, thrown towards them um, so there we can't allow this to continue um, and there also isn't necessarily really one barrier which is going to kind of open the floodgates we need to be doing better on all fronts and while yes progress has been made work still remains to be done you know, we need more diversity and inclusion within politics. So we need more women, we need more people of color, we need more folks from all financial walks of life, not just people who either they have built a tremendous amount of financial success or they come from a tremendous amount of financial success. Um, and we need those diverse individuals participating in the conversation to help build our city, our province and our country in a way that works for everyone. And you know there are amazing programs such as one which I participated in, and I'm so honored to have had the chance. It's Ask Her YYC, and then it, uh, there's also one up in Edmonton called Parity YEG, and both are, are are aimed at helping women prepare for getting more involved in 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 running uh, politically or even working on a campaign. But starting to see more women, women identified individuals. I also should just uh, clarify for listeners. Um, it, it's for, for LGBTQ2S plus women along with uh, cisgendered women as well. Um, so really, you know, it, it starts with you. 
It starts with me. It starts with our whole community. You know, we, we, we can ask her to run or we can ask her to get involved or to put her name, you know, forward. But then we also have to be ready to support her, to fund her, to fundraise for her, to do all of these things that are actually going to help her or help any um, diverse candidate get across the finish line. Because again, that's how we will then be able to bring forth change once we get these folks in there. Absolutely. And I think that you hit on so many really important points. Um, One thing I wanted to dig into a little bit further, you said um, that earlier on in your life, you did a transition. And so I guess Tara and I had done some research and I think it was last year in maybe season two, where we were looking at some of the um, employer benefits and health plans for um, companies across Canada and the US. And um, we had heard that some of these employer sponsors plans didn't cover things like um, gender reassignment, um, surgeries or medication for transition, whether that's hormones or something else. So I'm wondering if you're able to speak to um, the financial impact of that transition for you, just because I don't know if we've ever been able to ask someone that question. Yeah. So personally, and again, it can, it can range for, it can definitely, you know, vary depending on a person's individual personal circumstance. Um, However, again, for, for myself and personally, I, I pay out of pocket uh, for, for my hormones. Um, Really, it has only ever been, at the mercy of if I happen to be working for an employer who happens to have health benefits, which not every employer offers their, their employees. Um, so there have been a few moments since I began transitioning 10 years ago where I have worked for an employer that did have a, a health coverage plan. Um, but even then it's not a full, again, it's a full coverage, um, which right. again, e- even for non, you know, LGBT uh, medical issues, it's not always fully covered. Um, but for the most part, throughout most of my transition, I have paid out of pocket for my hormones. And especially uh, early on, it was taking things like testosterone blockers, plus taking the hormone patch. So there were two hormones, plus in addition to also taking uh, and having to pay for medications for severe anxiety, for depression, um, for, for other you know, mental mental health challenges, which again, kind of were, were, were all a part of a part of the package when you're, you're, you're navigating a world that is not designed or reflective of who you are as an individual. Right. Um, so again, if we go back to that whole, so if you're, if you're barely making minimum wage, um, and you know, you're having to pay your rent, you're, you're having to put food on your table. Now you're also having to pay for medication, which could easily, I think at the height of, of when I've paid for medication has been like maybe an extra like $120, $130 a month. Yeah. Um, so uh, again, it's very, now there are some folks, again, th- this has not been my experience, but there are some folks who, yeah, you know, they, they, they have an office job or they have a corporate job or or whatever circumstances they manage to find themselves in that, yeah, they, they do have uh, medical benefits. Um, and so a portion of that is covered. Plus 
they might also be making more than say someone who is 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 working in in retail or working in a restaurant or or is even unemployed actually which is an, another very sad reality for a lot of, of lgbtq plus individuals is struggling to to, to find gainful full employment um so it, it really it really depends the the unfortunate narrative is that yeah, it, it does cost, it does cost money. And even if we, even if you have that medical coverage for prescription medication, which thank, thankfully we do live in Canada where we do have universal health care. So we do have, have, have coverage for stuff like that. Um, but if we look at within Canada, say things like after you go for surgery and then you have aftercare costs. So if you're off work, in my case, I had some really severe complications, which saw me off work for the better part of a year. Um, you know, there, there was no coverage for that. The, the job that I had at the time was not a full-time job. It did not have uh, short-term or long-term disability. So quite literally, I was relying and, and thank, you know, thanks, you know, be to, to whatever out there you believe in that I did have, you know, someone who was able to step up a little bit to make sure that I, you know, was able to keep roof over my head and food on the table. Um, but still, it's, so there are, there are lots of, there are lots of costs that people don't necessarily think. You also have to factor in things like laser hair removal, um, which is not cheap. Um, mm. You know, m most most folks will, you know, more than likely end up spending anywhere between a thousand to two thousand dollars on laser hair removal. That is not that that that's not a reality, a financial reality that most you know transgender individuals uh, find themselves being able to do. Um, and then you also have clothing. Like it's not like you don't you just you know. When, when you're transitioning, it comes with, you know, a new wardrobe. It's not like the universe, you know, hands that to you. No, you have to go out and start buying uh, these, these, these affirming uh, clothing articles, um, whether that's, you know, you know new, new undergarments, new, new, new work clothes, new, like all of that, right? So it's, yeah, there's a lot of costs that people don't necessarily think of that, that come with, with transitioning. Um, and yeah, it does, it is expensive and can be very expensive. And so luckily here in Calgary, though, we are so fortunate to have um, an organization such as Skipping Stone, which does do a lot of work within the transgender community um, and, you know, does try and alleviate some of these burdens with transgender and gender diverse uh, Calgarians and in fact, Albertans. Um, come across. And in addition to Skipping Stone, there is also Exo Treatment Room here within Calgary, who is, uh, has also stepped up and is providing uh, a, a decrease uh, in cost for services such as laser hair removal for trans and, and gender diverse individuals. So, you know, the community is definitely changing. And I'm so I'm so thankful to see that. But again, it is it, it was not a reality that I had uh, 10 years ago when I was starting out. Right. Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, I was born a woman and have um, obviously seen how expensive that can be. And that's not including any of those medications or surgeries or having to buy a completely new wardrobe at any point in time in my life or having to pay thousands of dollars for laser hair removal. So I can only imagine the financial burden. And I mean, Tara and I have talked about this before, but you know, whether it's $2,000 on CERB or a universal basic income that is a living wage, which I guess in Calgary is around $19 an hour, you're not 
getting that much extra out of your budget when it comes to, you know, having that small amount of money, to be honest, in a large metropolitan city being deposited into your bank account? Absolutely not. You know, no one is, no one is getting rich off of, off of this like no one is living you know high high on the hog on on the on the cerb um i mean i also know i mean i'm in the boat where i would love to 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 be back to work um there there is nothing that i would enjoy more i actually uh you know i i go quite stir crazy so this other argument that oh you know people on serve they're never going to go back to work uh, well that would be wrong i very much am eager to to get back to work i hate uh, it drives me wild when people say that. And I'm like, maybe if you're in such a terrible employer and you paid your employees a little bit better, they would come back to work. But that's a whole nother conversation. So, so yeah. So, but you, you know, you, you hit it right. You, you hit the nail right on the head. It's that, yeah, that there isn't a whole lot extra. Um, you know, I think, you know, if, if you're looking like downtown or even central Calgary, I think rent is maybe average, Eleven hundred bucks, a thousand to eleven hundred bucks, depending upon on on where you're looking. Maybe that's a bit high, but probably not by much. So okay, so let's say it is a thousand. You get two thousand dollars a month. So there goes a thousand. Let's say you have a let, let's say you have a phone, so that you can actually you know connect you know with folks and and do things. I think that's a pretty uh, basic you know basic need by folks to be able to connect with their community. Um, let's say maybe you have internet so that you can do things. Maybe you're doing online schooling. Maybe you're working online. Maybe you've managed to find a job that you can work remotely, but you do need internet in order to connect with things. So there's phone internet, which is going to eat into it. Then you also have to get things like groceries. Um, maybe, maybe your work isn't remote. Maybe you are having to transfer, um, uh, or sorry, take transit um, to, to your, to your job. So you need a bus pass, like all these things, it, it goes very quickly. Like it is not, it, it is not actually a lot of, of money. And so, yeah, folks, you can definitely tell folks that aren't navigating the, the, the CERB because yeah, they, they have a very, they have a very warped perception of, of what it actually is like being on the, on, on the CERB or even EI or, or really any kind of uh, social income support. It is, it, 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 for me personally, again, some folks, but for me, it's like, I'm, I'm qualified. I'm, you know, educated. I'm ready, willing, and able. I, I would much rather actually be, be working to, to make it rather than be on a social, you know, assistance program. Like I am, you know, all of, all of that. So, so yeah. There, there, there's my two cents on, on the CERB. Yeah. And something you had said, Anna, when you were talking about all the additional costs, like it got me thinking about, you know, pharmacare and stuff as well, because I've noticed some comments from um, people in the disabled community um, or people with disabilities um, or advocates. Um, they're saying, you know, 2000 bucks, like it doesn't get you a heck of a lot. And, you know, sometimes all of that money needs to go to, to things just to help you to live. And so when we're talking about hormones and I think of, you know, all the hormones that I have taken for like birth control um, or when you're talking about things that you need for um, mental health care, like that kind of thing. If we had a basic income to ensure that like we had food on the table for everybody and that also that without prejudice or judgment, people were just able to get the pharmaceuticals that they need for whatever reason, like full stop. I, 
I just don't understand. <laughs> Sometimes I think about these things and I just don't understand why there's a line, why there's a line of you need to be employed by somebody who has decided to, um, you know, buy into to a national like benefit insurer because it's all insurance anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or that you have to be working to be able to feed yourself or you have to be working, you know, and some of these things like you need food to live, you need medication to live. Um, you know, I personally don't think there's anything so different about almost any kind of medication as to say like insulin, you know, it's just a different kind of life need, but it's still allowing you to live. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, I I mean, it it very much is a matter of, yes. I mean, these are these prescriptions or, you know, these services. And I know, you know, for some, for, for some listeners, you might, you know, they might be thinking, oh, well, laser hair removal, well, that is, you know, that, that's so vain or, or, oh, it's it's a beauty, right? Yeah. Frivolous. And it's like, well, no, if you are, if, if you are transitioning from male to male, hormones do not even really touch your, your, your facial hair. And if, depending on when you started hormones, that could, you know, you could, you could have a full beard and even with shaving and cover up your five o'clock shadow is going to come through. And again, she's a very, very, very outdated and gross, disgusting term, quote unquote, passable. Mm -hmm. Uh, That, that, that can be a barrier between you and getting hired for a job because the employer won't want, again, they'll they'll be having their reservations because we know for a fact that 80% of out trans individuals within the workplace receive harassment and discrimination within the workplace. That's if they have a job. That is not even those who don't have a job and are maybe newly, uh, beginning to transition. So this is not, this is not a frivolous uh, service. This is actually something that this individual needs to both A, and first and foremost, be affirmed in who they are as an individual. And that, that, that should above all else, like that should just be full stop, end of conversation. Unfortunately, it, it usually isn't. Um, so the other part of that is this is actually a service that is not covered um, through, through Alberta Health um, and is out of pocket. And the reality is without that service, there are barriers and challenges which that individual is going to be met with. So again, the, the, the argument is moot, but people, yes, they, they hear laser hair removal and they think that, you know, we're, you know, it, it's frivolous or in vain. And it's like, no, actually this is, this is a service that is actually required. I, I wish it wasn't. It's like, yeah, maybe we should be having a broader conversation of how do we as a society move beyond these preconceived beauty standards and notions of, of women or men or whoever. And maybe we should just, you know, live and let live and not really care about what somebody looks like on the outside. I mean, that actually is probably the bigger conversation we should be having. Um, but because that really blows people's minds, we'll just start with, Hey, we need to make sure that the service is accessible to folks. Yeah. And I feel like people who have that argument are, you know, probably not women with, hair that is not like standard to be to to you know um society's conventional like beauty standards um yeah like (laughs) as a lady who's like grown up with that because my background's like portuguese and we you know we come out a little bit different um (laughs) I, i feel like those people like they clearly just don't get it i don't know i feel like people yeah it would be nice if people didn't care what my eyebrows looked like or if every you know 
inch of us was like plucked and stuff like that. But at the same time, you have to allow women to be able to like live in the society that we have now. And yeah, laser hair removal for trans ladies is like, that should be a no brainer. That should absolutely be a no brainer. Like we all buy magazines. We know what we're dealing with here. Like let's start chipping away at it, but this is what we need now. For sure. For sure. Oh, sorry. That just made me really angry. Like, I don't know how a woman could say to another woman that like, this is not um, something you very clearly need to, to make it in society. And yeah, that whole horrible notion of, of passing and stuff like that, but it is. And I feel like every lady knows that you have to know that at some level. Anyway, I'm going to get, I get a little angry and shouty if you didn't listen to our past episodes. No, well, well, you know what, to, 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 to make a really, again, to, to make a real, I'm going to, you know, give a huge, 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 huge shout out, you know, Annie Graham, Exo Treatment Room, she, she recognized that very much all that we've, you know, just been talking about as, as related to this, she recognized all of that, that, hey, this actually is something that we need to make sure that, that we're making happen for these kiddos and youth and people. So yeah, she, she has stepped up. She is a gem uh, within the community and is, is making it happen for trans and gender diverse folks realizing that, yeah, this is not, this is, has nothing to do with vanity. This is literally a service that can, yeah, can actually be life-saving, like really being affirmed in who you are and feeling that can actually make the difference between somebody yeah, but between life and death for folks, that that's not dramatic. That is actually a strong, tangible reality. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Annie Annie is one of our, our our gems within the community and an absolute amazing individual who recognizes that, and I absolutely love her for it. That's cool. amazing. I'm definitely gonna check them out. Um, I haven't really been going a lot of places during COVID, but good news is. She is also doing virtual facials. So if you, again, the total oh, cool. non, just for, just for like, she, she actually does like have a, a skin and, and, and facial company. And so, yeah, like she, throughout this entire pandemic, she pivoted and yeah, started doing like online facials. So she does like online consultations and then she makes your own special, special uh, care and thing. And yeah, so anyways, there, there, there's, there's a little shout out that yes, if you're, if you're in the need for the best of the best in terms of, skincare and just an amazing rad facialist go see annie and she has a cute little dog named sprinkles too so like the, the cutest door greeter in all of calgary i do love a good pup <laughs> he is he is adorable he will yes he, he steals the show ever so ever so wonderfully because yes he's just this cute little fluff ball of a pomeranian that's so cute yeah i can't wait to visit um getting back to your looking to be elected in Calgary and what we've talked about with, you know, kind of creating like a big picture equitable society. What do you think is, I don't know if you could pick the most impactful piece of policy and you could just, you know, push it through on your first day in office when you get elected. What do you think that piece of policy would be that would be the first major step to creating an equitable city of Calgary? (laughs) I, I'm laughing because I've I've thought a lot about this um, of, of of how we do that and in order to create an equitable Calgary for for everyone we we first must listen to all Calgarians and have everyone at the table 
creating meaningful and compassionate dialogue about the type of city we want to live in. Any policy that is being put forward has to be put through a, a lens of intersectionality. Uh, again, if we look at Ward 8, yes, there's a tremendous amount of, a, of uh, diversity within that ward, but if we expand that out to the city of Calgary, there is so much diversity and cultural and socioeconomic, all of these different things, right? Um, so any, any policy has to be put through that lens. Um, Calgary is, as I just mentioned, it's diverse. It's a passionate city. We are also incredibly passionate. Um, I was never interested in hockey before I moved to Calgary and I moved to Calgary and all of a sudden I'm like, yes, I love when the flames win. Um, you know, like we're, we're just, we're a passionate city um, and community here. Um, and so our biggest, you know, one of our biggest resources that contributes to the energy uh, within our community with here within Calgary is our people. Um, during the co during COVID-19 and, and during the pandemic and even before, small businesses have endured a tremendous amount of adversity and have not received much in terms of meaningful and tangible support, both from the provincial and federal government. Even, I mean, they've received a small little bit from, from municipal government, but even then, not a, not a whole heck of a lot. They're still kind of, you know, standing out, you know, left in the cold being like, hey, what about us? Literally, we employ, throughout Canada, SMEs employ 80% of our workforce. Within Alberta alone, I think 91 or 92% of business within Alberta is small and medium enterprise. So they're kind of sort of going like, um, hey, you know, like we're, 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 we're hurting, like not, like we're, we're not complaining. We just, we, we, we need some tangible, meaningful support. Otherwise, we're not going to survive. And if we lose that, well, now we're going to see a whole lot of we're going to see a whole lot more folks out of out of a job, unemployed. Uh, we're going to see kind of that energy within our communities. You know, I live uh, just off of 17th Avenue, and so I see that energy. People are going out, getting you know their coffee from the local coffee shop, whether that's Analog or wherever. Um, you know, so all of that, right? Like we, we need to ensure that that our, our our lifeblood of our community, which is small business and entrepreneurs, are, are able to survive. Um, so yeah, we, we need to we need to be ensuring that we we keep them alive and supported, so that we can see them flourishing and also building for sustainable and and livable communities as as a result. But you know the other thing, because I, I I was very acutely aware when I was kind of you know pondering this, and I've again been pondering it pretty much for the last seven months as I've been going about this road of you know, how do we do this? How do we do this? And again, part of it has to be, you know, us building for our community, our city and our plan, and really having all of those voices being heard, and then moving forward uh, together. So along with the support of, of small business, and if we, you know, again, looking at that equitable factor, we also need to be ensuring that we're creating that equity through frontline services and support for which we are putting towards community organizations and programs. So seeing greater access to food security within say a community such as Sanelta or seeing public transit access to communities in our far north or deep south. Um, so that's a really long way of saying there is no one policy that is more important than the other. Rather, it really is about building a platform, 
especially as a candidate, it is about building a platform and engaging on multiple policies, which will be bringing forth greater equity to our communities, getting out into the community and hearing, hey, what is, what is important to you? What matters to you, your family, your neighbors, and, and, and what do we need to do to make that happen? And that is what I would be getting to work on on October 22nd, 2021, which is the day after the election. And, you know, the, the intention is to win on that day. So I would be, you know, going to work the next day and starting work on all that. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. I like that you brought up the the small businesses, the local businesses. Um, I think I touched on it in our like initial COVID episode in like March or April. But like I've noticed historically when we see these shocks, when um, when something happens to the local communities where we're not able to pull together and kind of fight back against like big multinationals or big nationals. And, you know, they say they're going to bring jobs and they say they're going to be doing this, that, and the other, mm-hmm. you know, they're globally subsidized through what we can see as uh, wage suppression um, and inequity from country to country and uh, jurisdiction to jurisdiction with places that don't have the same safety standards that we do and the same minimum wages that we do. Um, We can see that they're nationally subsidized in some cases if they're big enough. We can see that they're provincially subsidized. So then we have our local homegrown, you know, hashtag YYC businesses and we have nothing to give back. I, I mean, I don't even know how you do that in the municipal framework since you're only, you know, working off of a property tax base. And it's like the residential folks are going to get hit hard. Yeah. The, the local businesses are going to get hard, but I mean, when do we start ensuring that we have like a strong enough base of local businesses and then also you know, maybe some way to like recoup some of those benefits that these multinationals, nationals, and just very wealthy corporations have lobbied for, um, you know, when do we start bringing them back and like ensuring that, um, y- you know, the products that we buy that are are not, <laughs> you know, this is a shit way to say it, but, you know, that are not like really from here. You know, when do we see that that is coming back to the everyday Calgarian? Is there uh, a way? Yeah. is the, What would you do about that, I guess? Because it's something I see as being a big problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, I mean, there, there's a lot in there. Um, I mean, to, to touch very, you know, very quickly on, you know, big multinational, you know, these, these big, huge corporation, corporations, you know, they are also not being immune to the impact. Uh, you know, Arlene Dickinson, who is a phenomenal Calgarian and community member uh, here within the community of Calgary and throughout Alberta, and is just, again, amazing, amazing woman, um, posted on her story the other day that, you know, Victoria's Secret has declared bankruptcy. Like that was mm-hmm. like, they are huge. I think they're owned by L Brands, who their owner is like one of the like 10 richest individuals in the world. Zara has closed 1200 stores. Chanel, Hermes and Rolex. These are three of the biggest, hugest uh, fashion brands in the world. They've stopped production. So they're not even producing any anything new right now. 
Nike is getting ready to stage two uh, uh, refundancies. Airbnb founder says that due to the pandemic, 12 years of effort have been destroyed in six weeks. Starbucks has announced the permanent closure of 400 stores, which, and again, we think, oh, Starbucks, yeah, they're probably all over the place. No, we've actually lost quite a few within, within the community mm-hmm. of Calgary. I know I've, I've, I've chatted with a few folks and like, I lost my local Starbucks. And whenever I hear that, I'm like, well, technically that's kind of an oxymoron, a local <laughs> Starbucks. They're not actually. Anyways, I'm like, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not too, too sad about the Starbucks. Like we do have some really great, amazing local coffee shops that, that you could go to. But again, these are huge. I, I was literally walking down 17th Avenue and I think it was a secondary Tim Hortons uh, stop that I was just walking past and I kind of noticed. I'm like, whoa, like they're gone, like closed up, closed shop, gone, goodbye. So like the, the big guys are also not being immune because the, the whole thing kind of sort of goes back around what we were talking earlier about is income, right? Like we, we currently have, again, I'm pretty sure it hasn't shifted much. Um, but at the height of the pandemic, we had 8 million Canadians who were unemployed, who were accessing the CERB. So that's $2,000 a month. Again, we've already gone through the whole, that's not a lot of money. So even if you want to, like, I would love, 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 love to be down shopping on 17th Avenue, supporting local businesses like Rubaiette or Leo or mm-hmm. over in Englewood, supporting, you know, stores like Limoncello um, or Cody and Sue or all of these places, even restaurants, like all of these things. I would love it. I would love to be doing it every single day. I can't. Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I actually financially can't do it because I, I don't have the means to right now. So I mean, I've been, you know, supporting them through like social media and, and, and sharing their stuff. But again, it's like, that's not money in their bank account. So uh, what can we do at a municipal level? Um, first and foremost, what we need to, to do, and I think you touched a little bit on it, you know, when we talk about property taxes and th- that is going to be a hot button issue this election, we know that many Calgarians, they're feeling the pinch of property taxes. Um, now, again, to say that, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to slash property taxes. Well, that's not productive because guess what we have to do if we're going to slash property taxes? We also have to slash services such as public transit um, and, you know, road maintenance or even green space maintenance. So maintaining our parks, which, hey, guess what? We're utilizing a heck of a lot more these days because we can't spend too much time inside. We're, we're, we're utilizing our parks. What we really need to do, and it was just released, they had an independent, an independent, sorry, advisory council on property taxes and kind of sort of putting a, a, a new way forward if we look at taxation. Now, for any listener that is thinking, oh, so they're just going to create new taxes. They're just going to tax me to death. No, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is we need to look at doing, our, our tax system is broken. Our, our way about in which we go collecting taxes is broken. We do need to look at maybe a creative new way, new solutions of how we go about addressing taxation. Now, the flip side of that is because any listener uh, who kind of has a, a general sense of, of how government works will be listening going like, um, Anna, you can't do that. You're municipal. Correct. We actually can't. It actually is in within, within the Municipal Government Act of how municipalities do collect uh, revenue. Uh, very much so like municipalities actually can't run a deficit for anyone who didn't know that municipalities actually can't budget for debt. Um, So what does that mean? Well, we need to see municipality and the provincial government working together, which I think it could be safely said that we haven't really seen a whole lot of, we maybe have seen a little bit of it, 
but not a whole heck of a lot. Nothing tangible and nothing meaningful when it comes to a collaborative relationship between the province and the city. Now, six of one, half a dozen of the other in terms of the argument of, oh, well, the province's fault versus the municipality's fault. You know what? I don't care whose fault it is. I really, I, I'm not interested in arguing whose fault it is. Let, let's be adults. Let's, let's be, you know, people who are in a position to make change and let's just move on with life and, and make it happen. I don't care whose fault it is. Let's fix it. Um, but you, you do need to have that collaboration in order for the province to kind of sort of change the MGA, the Municipal Government Act, to really kind of allow municipalities to kind of sort of get a bit more creative in exploring, hey, how do we address this issue of taxation in terms of collecting revenue when we understand that the system itself is broken? So we need to look at that. And literally they just did, I think it was two or three weeks ago, uh, an independent advisory council here within Calgary, they released uh, uh, an independent report on kind of some, some ways of how we would go about doing that. So that would be one of the very first things that I would be getting down to in office is getting a really deep dive into this report and starting to build that collaborative relationship with the provincial government to, to make some of this stuff happen. Um, because we, we, can't, we can't just shift all of the responsibility onto business, which quite frankly is exactly what this city has done for a lot of years. That's one of the reasons why we're in such a, a tight spot um, <clears throat> for, for taxes. So we, we can't do that. The, other, the same can be said, we can't just now shift it all onto residential owners because, well, hey, guess what? Residential owners aren't making as much money. So even if it is, like our, our, our property taxes haven't actually gone up a huge, huge amount in, in the last decade. I think over the last 10 years, they've in total gone up by like a thousand bucks, which actually really isn't a huge lot if we, if we spread it out over that course of time. But again, we, we need to look at if we were looking at ways of doing things differently, which how many times in the, in the course of this pandemic have we heard from folks saying, we need to do things differently? Well, maybe we should start doing things differently rather than just saying, let's do things differently. Let's actually have a conversation and see how we can actually make that happen. And the framework is already there. Like the report is already released. They literally have their recommendations. It would just be about working like again, building that relationship, that collaborative relationship with the province to, to make some of this happen. Like it, it's right there. They've literally done the work. We don't even need to wait, you know, spend time or money doing the report. It's already done. It's literally there. We just need the power to actually bring some of these recommendations forward. Yeah. So that kind of like leads into my next question. Cause, um, you know, talking about the, the local businesses that have been disrupted because of COVID, um, the residential uh, property owners that have, you know, maybe lost income and, and that kind of thing because of COVID. Um, so we know through, you know, some statistics before COVID that, um, you know, there are financial disparities, disparities in equity in terms of like gaining income, getting wealth, that, that kind of thing. Um, so I think you noted that COVID had been particularly financially devastating to the LGBTQ2S plus community. Okay. What, yeah, can you just like kind of take us through uh, what has happened? So <clears throat> EGAL Canada, so E-G-A-L-E Canada, uh, put out a report that essentially went and looked at 
how are Canadians who identify as LGBTQ2S plus being impacted due to COVID comparatively to non-LGBTQ2S plus Canadians? And they focused it on a, a few different a few different avenues, but a lot of it actually was specifically targeted towards um, things such as their current financial uh, status, uh, the, the financial position of their household, getting a new job, uh, you know, job loss, all of that. And the, the, the really short summary of that report is that we see in, in data, in, in tangible, actual, data-driven, factual-based evidence that LGBTQ plus Canadians are being more adversely impacted than non-LGBTQ plus Canadians when it comes to the effects of COVID-19. Now, that is not me saying that, you know, other Canadians are not hurting who aren't. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. What I'm saying and what this report says, that's the other thing, it's also not me, it's actually a factual uh, national study and, and data-driven evidence that literally says this is a reality, we need to be addressing this. Um, so one of the biggest numbers that was quite stark is 53% of LGBTQ Canadians do not feel confident about their current financial situation. This compared to 40% of non-LGBTQ plus Canadians. So that is, a, that is a huge number. Like that is, because again, this is, na this is uh, nationwide. This is not uh, just for the province of Alberta or, or Ontario or BC. This is, this is nationwide. Um, and so that is, a, that is a huge number, again, and comparatively to, to non-LGBTQ Canadians. So, well, what can, what can we do to, to kind of, you know, bring about better, you know, you know, better financial solutions, better opportunities for job creation, municipalities that, or, you know, communities that are, that are more reflective and, and create better equality, uh, you know, at, at both a municipal and provincial level, we can create support for preventative community programming. Also at both levels, we can provide funding to nonprofit organizations. So some of those within Calgary would be things like Skipping Stone, uh, YYC Outlink, uh, Queer Arts or yeah, Queer Arts Society, um, Calgary Pride, um, all of these things that, that are doing work within, within our community to, to advocate and, and promote and create equitable spaces within our communities. Um, the government can also advocate and be in support of and create legislation, which would protect and promote, say, the creation and establishing of, of, of GSAs and parent groups, which, why is that important? Well, because we know that they help prevent LGBTQ2S plus youth homelessness and mental health challenges. So we know factual data that if, if, a, if a youth is supported very early on and they feel empowered, that's only gonna help promote them in, in, in later on in life. So this is gonna help them feel confident when they're going out to get a job. This is gonna help them not being, you know, navigating mental health challenges, which might you know, be, be creating a barrier for them going out and, and finding employment. So that, that's, that's what we can do. Now that's a bit more at a, at a provincial level as opposed to a municipal level, 
but we, we, we certainly can be in support of it at, at a municipal level. Uh, we can also create drop-in youth programs that are LGBTQ2S friendly, but also specifically targeted towards LGBTQ2S plus individuals within our community. We can also engage with LGBTQ2S plus youth and adults uh, through internships or advisory councils. One really great example is actually the city of, of Grand Prairie's uh, youth council, which actually has advocated for uh, further protections uh, with the province as is related to LGBTQ2S plus students, along with developed a documentary called uh, Redneck Rainbow. So the other thing that we can do, so we know people are unemployed and we know that this unemployment is obviously contributing to their, their, their lack of confidence in their financial situation. We know that hiring practices aren't always necessarily the most inclusive and can actually create a barrier to creating diversity within the workplace. So specifically at a municipal level, we can support more inclusive workspaces by providing mandatory training for employees to increase their understanding of LGBTQ2S plus identities, to develop empathy and increase knowledge of human rights um, and improve their ability to foster safer, more respectful workplace environments. Additionally, we can actually examine current hiring and promotion practices and identify areas that need to be improved in order to foster more inclusive and diverse workspaces, which authentically reflect the everyday citizens for which they are responsible to serve. Again, you'll, you'll remember uh, earlier in our conversation, uh, I said, you know, transgender and gender diverse individuals see 80% of those whom are out, quote unquote, experience workplace discrimination or harassment um, to the point of, if, if you want to, if I can get personal for a moment, I can remember being very early on uh, and, and being out. At, at that point, I had pretty much made the sacrifice to dress as androgynously as possible. I cut my hair into a, a very short, 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 short haircut. It was kind of uh, reminiscent of, of, of Jennifer Goodwin in, in Once Upon a Time. So it was kind of short, kind of feminine, but not really. It was, it was, it was terrible on, on me. Uh, but I did that in order to get hired for a job. And it was very shortly after that they found out actually that I was transgender and uh, very quickly uh, fired me from that job. So again, this is, this is the reality of why it is so important that we create inclusive workspaces. Um, you know, even looking at things like, you know, gendered washroom signage, I know that's not, you know, a huge ta-da uh, thing, but it, it can be when you're walking into say an employer or a workspace and you see that, hey, they're, they're, these aren't gendered washrooms. So that's gonna be more affirming and more welcoming to say someone who is is non-binary who doesn't uh, who does not identify uh, on on a on a on a for a specific uh, gender identity um, so you know policy is merely a starting point like that's the other thing is governments don't have all the answers um, you know diversity is often celebrated within Canadian municipalities and is seen as a positive asset within our communities. I don't think, you know, for most people, they wouldn't argue that diversity is, 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 isn't a positive asset for our communities. But diversity itself and knowing that we have diversity does not automatically result in inclusion. And that's what we need to be seeing here. We need to, as a community, intentionally foster and develop and continually cultivate inclusion, seeing communities becoming ones 
which celebrate and promote, you know, vibrant cultural diversity, which we know makes them livable and sustainable. Um, and that's a role that all governments have to take a leadership uh, position on and are proactively assessing and anticipating in, in removing barriers that may prevent diverse individuals, not just sexually and, and gender diverse individuals, but all uh, diverse or marginalized individuals. Uh, we need to be removing these barriers from them accessing equitable access and having participation and equal opportunity within our communities. Yeah, I love that. I'm really glad that you touched on the difference between, um, yeah, uh, accepting diversity, and, but then actual inclusion. Um, it's huge. And if, um, if the bathroom conversation ever comes up in Calgary, I know moms are often weaponized against it for some stupid reason. Um, if you ever need a mom uh, gender neutral washroom advocate, like I'm all here for it. Um, you know, if we could all have uh, gender neutral washrooms from the word go, I think it would actually do a lot to, you know, end harassment towards uh, all women, personally. If you just, from the get-go, look at everyone as your equal and not have to, like, segregate people to, like, go to the washroom, it's just, it's it's so unbelievable. So, um, and yeah. I'll second that, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I'll be a mom in November, so. Oh, <laughs> congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, it's been interesting being pregnant in the pandemic, but yeah. I will also um, make some heads roll if you need. Yeah. Well, and because uh, it is, I mean, it is still, it very much is still a thing. And I go back very early on um, in my transition. Um, and I had to actually, they don't do it anymore, or at least to my knowledge, I, I don't believe they do it anymore. But I actually had to have a carrying letter from my doctor that literally said that I was legally allowed to use the women's washroom. Fucking kidding. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that was, is because let's say I was in a mall and I walked into a washroom and let's say, you know, a mom or, or somebody had issue and took issue with that and, you know, asked for security or, or whatever. Without that letter, I actually could have been, could have been charged or, or could have, you know, been, been removed or, or banned from the property or, or all of these, all of these different things. And it was very, uh, we now, I'm, I'm pretty confident uh, at a provincial level, actually, we, we did move forward. Um, we always call it bathroom legislation. Well, it's actually not bathroom legislation. You're actually uh, providing basic human rights to people so that they can use a bathroom. Um, it's not bathroom legislation. It's a human rights legislation. Um, but anyway, so yeah, like I can, I can still remember that. And the sad thing is, is that I know talking to kiddos uh, even today that, yeah, they, they, they still feel uh, anxiety or they still get met with harassment or, or, or violence um, going into a, a bathroom or a change room, uh, even at school, um, all of those different things, right? So it, that's just, again, a, a proactive approach that a municipality can kind of sort of take to, again, is that going to solve their, the, the, the financial issue? No, it, it's not. That's not going to be what creates it. But what that does is that starts to create inclusion. And what that does is 
folks start to see themselves represented within their community, they start to look around and see, hey, I belong in this space. I matter, I'm valid, I'm valued in this space. Do you have any idea of what that empowerment alone does to, does to an individual? They, they all of the sudden feel like they have the world on a string to, to, to quote Frank Sinatra, but it, it, and it sounds cheesy and corny and, and Hallmark movie-ish, but it is so true. Like just these, 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 what we would think as maybe little things can actually be huge. And, and, and having that then starts to them feel empowered to maybe they go come forward and like, Hey, I can be, I can be a doctor. I can be a lawyer. I can be mayor. Never mind counselor. I'm going to be mayor. And that's what these, that's what this does. So it's, it's not maybe necessarily a direct, this is going to get money into your pocket policy but it is something that is gonna start changing our community and our society so that folks start to see themselves reflected and empowered so that they can be successful later on in life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I for sure get that. I think we need to, at the same time, you know, change society and legislation, but I think oftentimes we need to have that public opinion behind us um, before we can, you know, put it on the books, so to speak, right? Um, Unless Janine has something else, I think my last question for you would be, you know, we've mentioned it several times on our podcast. There's a bunch of issues we can't really speak to from um, experience, like being white cis het ladies. Um, But for those of us who... Um, you know, are not members of the LGBTQ2S plus community um, and who don't face as many barriers um, in the workplace or, you know, just in day-to-day life, what is it that we can do to start being inclusive on a day-to-day basis? First and foremost, it starts with opening up the conversation. I can remember... I was reading an article and it was talking about, it was actually talking about getting more women involved in politics. And it was approached from a very, again, very, very, very cisgendered, very heterosexual um, kind of sort of a, a typical kind of sort of lens. And I was sitting there and I was reading it and I was, you know, again, it, yeah, it was, it was kind of resonating, but then I kind of sort of went, whoa, like it got to a point where it was talking about, it was either financial barriers or something. And it just, it really didn't resonate because I was reading it. I'm like, well, that's not my reality because I actually have a different set of barriers or challenges because yes, I'm a woman, but I also happen to, to, to be transgender, which comes with its own unique set of, of, of barriers and, and challenges. And so that's what got me thinking. And I actually wrote an article on it for Madam Premier, who is, again, another phenomenal local business, which is all about women empowerment, whether that's politics or just women in general. But I, w- I wrote an article about it, and it was called Creating More Space for Transgender Women in Politics, recognizing that we need to open up the conversation. When we talk about getting women involved in politics, we need to understand that women means lesbian, uh, gay, bi, transgender women, non-binary women, every, every woman identified individual or who sees themselves and 
knows that they're a woman when they, when they wake up in the morning or identify somehow, some way as a woman, that's what the conversation needs to be. And realizing that by opening up that conversation, it doesn't take away from the feminist movement. It doesn't take away from the years of, of, of you know, looking at, you know, like prolific feminist moments such as, you know, the suffragettes movement or, you know, getting the right to vote or, or all of these different things. It doesn't take away from it. And we need to stop creating this us versus them mentality because at the end of the day, we are all, we, we really are, we are all fighting for the same thing, which is equality and inclusion within society. And the thing is, is by creating more space at the table, you actually get more voices that help you move your issue, uh, your cause, your fight forward. You're no longer doing it. It's no longer five of you doing it. It's now 25 of you doing it or 225 of you doing it because you've created that space. You've created that dialogue. And also we've now learned about more individuals within our community. So that's the first thing. The next thing, and it literally just happened today, I got tagged in a tweet about uh, there's a new kind of sort of activism, political activism group forming or, or something like that. And I, I hadn't heard of it, but I got tagged in a tweet where literally someone had to tell them, hey, it, maybe you should get some more, maybe you should ask some more diverse women to be a part of it. And they tagged, they tagged myself. They also tagged a couple of other individuals, uh, some BIPOC individuals or, or what, and, uh, you know, just some other diverse women. And it's like, that's the other part of it. Open the conversation, but then ask, ask people to be a part of, of the conversation. Reach out and ask, be like, hey, I'm doing this thing. Do you want to help or, or could you help or do you want to be a part of it? Ask, because I guarantee that more oftentimes than, than not, we'll say yes, or at least I'll say yes. I'm pretty good at it. If someone asks me, I, I rarely, very rarely ever say no. Um, and, and I'm more than happy. I don't claim to know everything. I, I really don't. Um, but I'm open to learning. I'm open to maybe bringing uh, a piece of, of a perspective that maybe, may, maybe no one's thought about before. And maybe through that, we move the wheel forward for every woman every marginalized uh, individual uh, within our community. So, so those would kind of be my first things is ask, ask for those people to come and sit at your table and also create that space at the table. And that can actually all be rolled all into one. By asking, you're creating the space at the table. By understanding that those voices are valid, you're creating space at the table. So that's, that, that's part of it. That, that's really a very basic way of how you do it. And through that, well, then you start doing the, 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 bigger, the bigger picture stuff. But it's starting with create room at the table for those diverse dialogues to be represented. Because if you're not even doing that, then there's, there's very little to, to move on with that because you're not even creating an opportunity for those individuals, those women, those diverse women to be at your table. It's kind of like the cool kids in high school eating their lunch over at a table and you want to be a part of them, but you're not allowed over at that table. So you kind of sort of go and, and, and sit off on your own and maybe you're eating by your lonesome and yeah, you kind of sort of have to figure it out yourself. Well, guess what? If, if we just invited that, that one kiddo over to our table to be a part of it, how much better the world would be. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I love it. 
I absolutely love it. I think that's a, we have a pink tax rebate at the end of every episode. And I really, I really like that. Um, Janine, did you have any other questions or, or anything? Um, I think one that I guess is not really related, but I'm super curious. So I'm going to ask it. Um, how have you felt, I guess, you've been treated differently from, I guess, your experience being, um, I guess, identifying as a woman versus identifying as a man and then going through transition? Like, how have people treated you through that and what differences have you seen? Yeah, so great question. So I, I never actually identified as a man. I can, Sorry, that was super presumptuous. No, 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 no. That there, because again, everyone's, everyone's journey is unique. Like I, I, I have seen trans people that, yeah, they, 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 they did identify as men or they did, you know, they, they did and then they didn't. And, and, and that's valid. Everybody's journey is, is valid and so unique. But I, for, for myself personally, there was never a moment that, you know, I, I, I looked in the mirror and was like, yeah, you know, I, I, I identify as, as, as a boy or it was always, again, I didn't know what it was. I mean, I grew up, I grew up in rural Alberta. Uh, the, the term gay was barely a part of our dialogue, of our narrative. I didn't know what that was at, uh, at, at five years old or at 12 years old. Heck, I kind of barely even really knew what it meant when I was 16 years old. So, but I always knew that, you know, I, I was more, I more identified with, you know, girls and, and having more, you know, feminine, you know, girlfriends rather than getting out and, you know, rough and tumble with the boys and, and stuff like that. And again, I can remember being ridiculed, absolutely ridiculed uh, relentlessly for, you know, being gay and, and not even knowing what that meant uh, at five years old, mm. um, at 12 years old. I didn't even know what that meant. Um, but then again, as I, as I started to grow in, because you know, right, you, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you, you know that, yeah, you you just know, you know, in your heart and your soul, who you are when you look in the mirror and when you look in the mirror and something's not quite right, you know, you, you, you absolutely know it. Uh, so I always did like, even now, like, I mean, I, I, I have no shame or nothing to hide. I can absolutely and very easily say, yeah, I'm a transgender woman. The reality is when I wake up in the morning or, or go about my day, I, I just think of myself as a woman. I don't even actually really consider myself transgender. I just consider myself a woman um, and, and have always kind of have had that. I've never even really thought of myself as, as, as trans. Just thought, yeah, I'm, I'm a woman. I just kind of maybe had to take the scenic route to get to, 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 get to where I can actually look in the mirror uh, in the morning when, you know, I'm, I'm showering or, or getting dressed and, and not feeling like, oh, oh my God, what, what, what's happening here? Um, so I, yeah, so I don't have, I don't have that experience of, you know, men and, and empower because the reality is, is I started transitioning right at 18. So right out of high school. Um, but throughout high school, I, cause I did it kind of in stages. Again, I grew up in rural Alberta. My, my father was a cowboy, worked in the energy industry. 
um, we, we lived on a ranch, we did all of that things, right? Like pretty, pretty stereotypical kind of, you know, rural, rural Alberta upbringing. Um, so to be easier on him, I did it in stages. I came out as, you know, bisexual and well, that label didn't fit. Then I came out as gay, well, that label didn't fit. And then finally, when I was 18 and, and kind of went out onto my own and as, as, as everyone does, whether you're, you're, you're cisgendered, you're straight, you're, you're, you're gay, you're whatever. Like when, when we go away to, to high school, when we leave home for the first time, we, yeah, we kind of sort of come into our own. We, we learn who we are a bit more. Than, than when we were in high school or, or living with our parents or, or however it is. So that's when I came to realize that, yeah, that, you know, the, the term transgender, it fits the, the label and, and what that meant medically and, and from, a, from a psychological uh, standpoint, it did. It absolutely fit. Um, the label fit. Um, but the reality is, is I, I've always been a woman. I just had to take the scenic route. Um, so I never had this period where I, I, I had more, more, more privilege, say, than, than a woman or had more opportunity given to me because I was a man. Now, I also am, am a relatively intelligent individual, and I'm very acutely aware that that is, like, there are some people who have transitioned later on in their life. And the experience that they've had and again i'm i am not for anyone who is listening i am not trying to steal anyone's story i'm just doing the best i can to give a full representation um but for some of those folks that have transitioned later on in life let's say maybe they they have maybe they've been working in a corporate job um and you know they've they've been relatively successful um and you know, they, they've had that typical misogynist, the kind of that, that, that patriarchal, not misogynistic, that patriarchal privilege afforded to them. Um, and then they transition and it, it changes. So now not only are they getting met with barriers because they're transgender, but they're also having to navigate with being a woman which has, again, both are going to have their, their own certain challenges and, and limitations in the workplace. Again, should it be that way? Of course, no, it shouldn't be that way. But that's the system that we're faced with that we're trying to dismantle and, and build back up to being more equitable. So yeah, it, it definitely is a thing. It, it absolutely is a thing. I, I did not go through that. I never experienced that um, personally, because I did transition relatively early like I, I I didn't transition after like when I was in my 30s or 40s or, or 60s so I I hadn't gone through a whole lot of, of life in a quote-unquote male body um, so so yeah but but your your question is valid because my experience again would probably be very different for that question say compared to, to someone who transitioned later on in their life and maybe they're in their 60s or, or, or older or even midlife where, yeah, they're, they're navigating that. I, again, I mean, I technically started what is late now, like lots of, lots of kiddos can, can start transitioning, I mean, early, like as, as early as, as five, I think, for some folks, um, which, again, has its, has its benefits for sure. Um, I, I transitioned at 18, so... Yeah, I don't have, I don't have a good answer for that. I, I really don't. I always, I always identified as a woman, so I always just, yeah. No, thank you for sharing. That's super insightful. Um, 
obviously, you know, 10 years ago, it was very different than what we're seeing even today. Well, and that's, yeah, that, that's the other narrative of it, right? Like 10 years ago doesn't seem like a long time ago. The reality is for the transgender movement and, and non-binary and, and all of this is when I first came out, there was no Laverne Cox on, on Orange is the New Black. There was no, uh, you know, transgender woman, former Olympian on the cover of Vanity Fair, you know, say what you want, you know, about any, but there, there was none of that, right? Um, there was no, um, uh, my name is Jazz on TLC and books. And there was none of that. Like I was looking out into the landscape because this is the other thing, you know, when we talk about, well, politics and getting into it, this is not something that I've been working towards for since I was in, in, in grade six or, or had in my mind that I've been chasing for 10 years. No, the reality is, is for the bulk of the last 10 years, I've been focused on surviving and overcoming a society that is not built for me as an individual and trying to find a way to, to fit within it and create a space within it. Um, but I look back to, I, I remember having these dreams, these big aspirations. At one point in time, I wanted to be the president of the United States until somebody, you know, eluded me to this thing called the Constitution. Um, and then I, you know, thought, oh, maybe I'll settle for prime minister. That was my exact words at 12 years old. I'll settle for being prime minister of Canada. <laughs> um, so, but again, and this, is, this goes back to that whole, when people can see themselves reflected in their community and they can be empowered, it is amazing what happens. Because I guarantee you, over the last three years have been such a polar contrast in, in my life, since I've undergone surgery, since a few people have, have supported me and, 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 and you know, got behind me and, and loved me or accepted me fully as, as, as who I am within the last three years. It's, it, it, it's, it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. So yeah, 10 years doesn't seem like a long time, but the reality is we have made leaps and bounds. In, in the other reality, transgender individuals have only been recognized under the Alberta uh, Charter of Human Rights within the last three years. So, oh so like the, the, this is fairly new and recent. Like it's not like we have been, you know. I think New Zealand just celebrated 125 years since women got the right to vote. In Alberta, we're celebrating four years since transgender women and transgender persons have been actually identified at, under the Human Rights Act within our province. So, like, like this is this is part of the narrative that we yeah. need to, that that we need to have. It's like. Yeah, this isn't this isn't the way it always has been. Like this is actually a fairly new recent thing. But the sad thing is, is that transgender individuals are not new. They have been around for as long as time and memorial. And the reality is, is we need to look to our indigenous uh, individuals, the 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 original holders of this land, because they have had. They don't call them transgender. They don't actually even refer to it as, as lesbian or gay or bi, they, 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 they refer to them as two-spirit individuals. Mm -hmm. And they help, have held them in such high regard. And then colonialism came in and, and totally ruined that. And that, that's something I learned literally yesterday. I was having a phenomenal and amazing conversation. And I learned that piece of knowledge from 
from, from an indigenous individual here. And I'm so honored and privileged that she shared that piece of information with me. That's amazing. Because it is, it was like, wow, like their two spirit community in their tradition, those are the people that would protect their, their community when the warriors would, would go off or when the, the men would, would go out to off to war or whatever the case would be. It was the two spirit community that stayed behind and, and protected the, the, the women and children. Uh, it, you know, it's the two spirits that can do because again, and, and I full to, to all viewers, I am not indigenous. This is just the story that I heard yesterday that I absolutely think deserves to be shared because it was absolutely fascinating. In, in indigenous culture, they, they need a man and a woman to, to do a ceremony, but two spirit, because you have both of those spirits, you can do a ceremony yourself. So it's just, it's, but it was just so fascinating and eye-opening to me. And I greatly, sincerely thank Marilyn North uh, Pagan for, for sharing with me her, uh, her traditional knowledge on, on the two-spirit people um, and, and having that conversation with me. Uh, it, was, it, it was fascinating and it was eye-opening. And I am so humbled and honored to, to now have that info. Um, so yeah, that, like, that's, that's what we need to... That, but, but, but that's what we've lost, right? We, 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 lost, we lost that through colonialism. We've, we, we've lost so much. So, you know, because one of the arguments that people say is, oh, it's a fad. Oh, it's a new recent thing. No, it is not, it is not a fad. It is not a recent thing. It is actually something that has been around in culture long before and not even our, uh, our culture. It is actually something that is a part of the, the culture of Turtle Island where we are guests and has been a part of their culture long before we came onto this land. So this is not a fad. It is so far from being a fad. It's, it's not even funny. That is just an ignorant uh, way of, of, of trying to create an argument towards something that you don't understand. Um, so, yeah. And it's, it's so powerful to think of it that way. And I, I wonder, you know, how different our society would be if that's how we treated two-spirit or transgender people um, in kind of, I guess, Western society. It's, it's definitely something interesting. Um, I wanted to just go back to something you said um, about being able to see who um, was in, you know, positions of power, whether it be the president or the prime minister or what have you. And I, I guess this is probably a good kind of quote to wrap it up, but I remember attending a conference and the founder of um, Girls Who Code was speaking as a keynote. And the one thing she said that really stuck with me and has stuck with me for a number of years. And I hope, my hope is, you know, for more diverse candidates to to take this, you know, steal this quote and run with it. And hopefully it, it resonates with you as well. But when we have those, you know, those kids looking up to us as, I guess, we're the adults now, apparently, um, <laughs> she kind of said, you know, you cannot be who you cannot see. And that just stuck with me so strongly. And obviously, you know, I'm a white female, but there's, you know, there's so many other different types of people that are not being represented. And you know, what does that do to, to the next generation coming up? It is it, that, that says it right there. Like it, how can you, how can you aspire to be something that you can't see? If you're not reflected, why would you chase after that? Society's telling you that you can't do it. So that's why, you know, it is so important to see people 
again, for, for women, whether you're a trans woman or, 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 or cisgendered woman, any kind of woman, that, that's why it's so important to see people like Jacinda Ardern down in New Zealand. Love or, her. Or, right? Like she is just, she, she is so phenomenal. Like that's who, that's who I aspire to. And I, I love when you said, you know, because we are apparently the adults now, it is also, yeah, it's terrifying. It's kind of, well, I shouldn't say terrifying. It's, it is terrifying. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it, is, it is a bit terrifying, but it, it's also incredibly humbling when you have a kiddo come up to you and say, hey, you're going to be the first person that I vote for. That's and, amazing. you know, like that is incredibly humbling. Like I, like to lose that, I would, like, I don't know how you could lose that. When somebody comes up and says, you're the very first person that I'm going to vote for you then it's like my mind goes to well then i better do a damn good job and make you pretty proud that you voted for me and better better earn that vote so yeah we we do we need to we need to create and have it so people people see themselves reflected in our community and we can do it we can make it happen despite everything we're seeing right now i so strongly and eminently believe in in calgary and in alberta we we are a phenomenal community We, we have a few hiccups that we need to iron out but we can do it. I know we can do it because the reality is, is, as I said, growing up in rural Alberta, it wasn't always me being proud. I didn't always see myself reflected or having a place of belonging. One of the greatest and most affirmed and places I have ever felt like I belonged is when I moved to Calgary. That's where I found my community. It's amazing. So we, we, we have it in us, Calgary, and I know we can do it. Yeah. And I think you're going to make a lot of, you know, people and young women very proud next election cycle so with that thank you so much for joining us anna where can people find you you can find me on instagram twitter uh and facebook uh my twitter and instagram handle is the like t-h-e anna a-n-n-a murphy m-u-r-p-h-y so if you do the the at or the search for the Anna Murphy, that'll bring up my my Twitter and my Instagram. And Facebook is very much the same, except it's the real Anna Murphy. And that should bring up my uh, that should bring up my Facebook uh, website is is currently in development, so that we can have that up and going for the campaign. But follow me on social; it's all there. Fantastic. Thank you so much again for uh, spending an hour and a half chatting with us this evening. Oh, it has been such a privilege and it's been such an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave a five-star review. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to share your money story using the hashtag FemFinances. 